The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and find your way to John chapter 14. We're working our way through John 13 through 17, which is known as the Upper Room Discourse. It begins with Jesus setting the examples to his disciples of washing their feet, showing them what true spiritual leadership is as a servant, and it climaxes with the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. As we move through this, this passage, this, it's this remarkable passage, it's almost like Pandora's box. You open one little verse and it just opens up so many levels and dimensions of theological nuance and, and thought. There were those who uh, during the Puritan age would spend the better part of a decade just in this section of scripture. Hopefully, we're going to move a little faster than that. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to simply one verse. It's really the tag of what we began last week. John 14, just verse 15. Jesus, after he explained to the disciples that they would one day do greater works than him, that is, sharing the gospel and seeing the dead spiritually raised to life, telling them that they could ask him anything in his name, and he would answer it, being in conformance to the will of God, being the proclamation of the gospel, says, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A few years ago, I took a group of about 30 collegians on a two-day whitewater rafting trip down the Kings River in central California. We had an amazing time. I still look back at that time with fond memories. Our group was assigned a, a, a group of guides who were there not only to lead each of our six-man rafts, but we would stop during different parts of the, of the whitewater trip and pull over the side. They would make us salads. I remember we had tri-tip. We had steak right on the edge of the river. It was wonderful. And really, they were almost justifying the expense that it took. They were making us uh, these food and really just treating us as kings almost. After the first day, the lead guide figured out that I was the guy who was in charge of the group. Her name was Amy, and she pulled me aside and asked me if she could talk to me for a few minutes. I said, sure. She said that the guides had been talking about our group the night before, and that they had uh, very simply not experienced a group like ours. The words she used to describe were courteous, respectful, and nice. And she had noticed that we were a college group and assumed we were from a college or university. Obviously, I thought this was an open door for the gospel, so I began to explain to her the gospel of Christ, that we were a group of Christians from Grace Community Church, the college ministry there, and that Jesus Christ was the one who had changed us into the kind of people that she was complimentary of and experiencing. My hope was of discussing more of Christianity with her, but her response, frankly, left me speechless. She said, you're a church group? Wow. Typically, our worst groups are church groups. And then she said something I will never forget. Amy said, you guys are great. You don't act anything like Christians. Well, I must confess that was one of my saddest experiences as a Christian and even as a pastor. It was clear that the Christians she had come in contact with had been such a problem that when she saw the real thing, she didn't even recognize it. 
That conversation I had with Amy highlights a reality I believe to be perhaps the most tragic and pressing of our generation of evangelicalism. How is it that so many claim to believe in Jesus, that so many claim to be Christians, that so many claim to have church membership, and yet it has very little impact and very little effect on their lives? How can a whitewater rafting guide say that someone who is courteous, respectful, and nice have little resemblance to a so-called Christian? Well, the answer may surprise you. It could be that not all of those who claim to know Christ have any real relationship with him. In other words, they're not redeemed souls, though they call themselves Christians. You might say, wait a minute, they've walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, accepted Jesus as their Savior, joined the church, gone to camp, thrown a pine cone in the fire. But yet there's no genuine fruit of repentance in their life. It may seem a little bit of an oxymoron, but I want to introduce you to a very terrifying and fearful theological term this morning. I want to open your mind maybe to a category that I hope you have if you've read your Bible very deep and very long, but if not, here's a tag for it. I want to introduce you to the sad case of an unsaved believer. You say, unsaved believer, that seems entirely oxymoronic. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in John 14 15. He says simply, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Let me say it another way. If you don't love me, you won't keep my commandments. Or another way, if you don't keep my commandments, it's proof that you don't love me no matter what you say. This verse is very simple. We're going to do the exegesis on this verse in just a few seconds, really. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Three predominant words in both the Greek and English are in this verse. Love, keep, and commandments. Love, agape, that predisposition of unconditional affection. Keep, tereo, it means to hold as precious, to hold as a treasure. Commandments, entole, these are precepts, these are rules, these are standards. If you put all of those word studies together and you put all that, the, uh, the packaging of that verse together, it really comes out like this. this is the words, these are the words of William Hendrickson, a famous commentator. I can't improve on his interpretive outline or interpretive um, translation, rather, of this verse, when he just lets these, the, the wonderful uh, nature of these three words come forth in this simple translation. He says this, what Jesus is saying is, quote, if with love that is both intelligent and purposeful, you love me, you will accept, obey, and stand guard over the rules which I have laid down for the regulation of your inner attitudes and your outer conduct. I mean, he wraps all of the definitions of the, those Greek words into that translation. Let me read it again. If Jesus was saying, if you, love, if you have love for me that is both intelligent and purposeful, you will accept, obey, and stand guard over the rules which I have laid down for the regulation of your inner attitudes and your outer conduct. Remember the context is doing the works of God and the will of God that Jesus just explained to the disciples 
in the previous section. We covered that last week. These are works done in the love of Christ, in the will of Christ, regulated by the word of God and not to go outside of that. Now back to our concept of an unsaved believer. Is it possible for someone to believe the facts of the gospel, to assent to the truth of what Jesus said and did, and not end up in heaven? James asks the same question. James says in chapter 2, verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Then he says, Can that faith save him? Listen to what he's saying. This man has a faith. He says he believes in the truth of the gospel, but nothing has happened to his life after that. Can that faith save him? And in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 of James, uh, he says, No, it can't. It concludes with that famous statement, faith without works is what kind of faith? It's dead. It's not alive. It doesn't exist. Amazingly, there are those in our generation, this is almost hard to read. There are those who argue for a salvation that is without repentance, without any change of behavior, without any change of lifestyle, without any real affirmation of Jesus Christ's lordship and authority. There are those who believe you can be saved without any perseverance, any discipleship, no obedience, without any resultant works, and a regeneration or a new birth that does not change a person's life. And the logic is this. Jesus will save you if you believe, but he won't change you. Your mind can go to believe facts, but your life can stay the same. All you have to do is read the entire book of 1 Corinthians and know that Paul is saying, if you're a believer, act like it. It's unbelievable to me that there are those who are the loudest proponents of this theology who are actually pastors and theologians and seminary professors and college instructors. Many are well-respected. You know some of the names of these men. And this has really climaxed into what has been known as the lordship salvation debate. Now, there are two words that get thrown back and forth. There are those who are in this category called lordship salvation. And that was a, a, a phrase that was invented by those who don't hold that Jesus must be lord in salvation. And then there's this category called easy believism. That's the people in the lordship salvation camp who've said those who believe that you can just believe and it's easy and then you can do whatever you want and live however you like. This is not a minor debate. This is not a minor nuance of theology. This isn't one of those fringe things that we can agree to disagree on. At the heart of this debate is the very essence of the gospel. At the heart of this debate is the very words of Jesus. At the heart of this debate is the truthfulness of the word of God. Why? Because it's over the nature of the gospel. And there's nothing more important than the gospel. It's what makes a person saved or prevents them from coming to heaven. It is, it's mandatory that we have an understanding, that we have a theology of lordship. Do you have a theology of lordship? Do you understand what it means that Jesus is Lord? Can you delineate that? Can you define that? Can you apply that? Can you submit to that? So what, the, what I want to do this morning is take off my, my pastor's hat, if I can, and put on the, the, the theologian cap. We're going to go to theology class for a few minutes. 
Um, we've seen this verse. It's a very simple, straightforward verse that really launches us into a greater understanding of what it means to be a Christian and what it means that Jesus claimed to be Lord, Master, Authority. What I'd like to do is take you on a brief tour, very quickly, on the history of the lordship debate. Now, if you are, I don't know, 20 years old or younger, you might have heard about this, but those of us who are a little older actually lived through it, and it's still an ongoing, raging debate. And I have to tell you, without qualification, that involves one of my mentors and dear friends, Pastor John MacArthur, whose church I was on staff at for about 25 years, and where I came from to be here. Um, I am a bit slanted in this understanding. I am a bit uh, predisposed in what I think about the lordship debate and the lordship controversy because, in a sense, I I lived through that and I saw the arrows flying through letters that came even across my desk against our pastor when I was out there. In my opinion, this is a debate that has its origin when men of God began to see a change in the way the gospel was being shared and, and the lives who had responded to the gospel invitations. If you go back in the 50s, that's when the, the full thrust of evangelistic, revivalistic meetings made its apex, not just like it did in the Great Awakening or in the times of Finney, but that's when radio preachers came to prominence. That's when TV began to televise uh, uh, a televangelist and, and people who were preaching the, the gospel. And many of those were so wonderfully blessed by God. I have a good friend who was saved watching Billy Graham at the end of a, uh, of a crusade in 1962 on television. It's wonderful. We thank God for the gospel going out during that time. But what happened was we would have, they would have all these events... People would walk the aisle, sing just as I am, all the verses, 12 times. And then they would go on and live lives that were fundamentally unchanged. Because they said they believed and nothing changed, someone had to then create a category, create a theology for those who said they believed but didn't act like it. The debate goes back to where those responses came out of the 1950s. In 1955, James A. Stewart wrote a little booklet entitled The Lordship of Christ in which he signaled a shift in emphasis in evangelism. He wrote, quote, During the past 30 years, we've noticed a gradual, subtle shift in the emphasis of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which amounts to a complete perversion of the blessed evangel, the gospel. The emphasis in our modern-day evangelism has shifted from that of the lordship of Christ to an easy believism. That's the first time we know that that term was used. 1955. The shifting of that emphasis has led to an adulterated gospel and changed the message and ministry of the church. That's no small claim. That this idea that you can have a gospel without Jesus being Lord, accept Jesus as your personal Savior, someday hoping to make him Lord, he says that's an adulterated gospel and changed the message of the church. Even before this time, men such as A.W. Pink, A.W. Tozer were sounding the alarm of a very different gospel presentation in the local churches that were happening that was being dumbed down, watered down, liberalized. And throughout the next few years, James Stewart's booklet, the debate, began to simmer because of that booklet. And it was kind of put on the back burner, though, until it hit the forefront with an Eternity magazine article that actually uh, debated the issue in print for the first time. 
S. Lewis Johnson, writing in the September 22, 1989 issue of Christianity Today, said, quote, It's probably safe to say that the forerunner of the current debate erupted in the late 1950s and early 1960s when two well-known evangelicals, Everett F. Harrison and John R. Stott, debated the issue in Eternity magazine back in 1959. Kenneth Gentry, writing in his little book, The Lord, uh, Lord of the Saved, said, Quote, following the 1959 Eternity Debate, Eternity Article, this issue began cropping up much more infrequently in evangelical writings. We see it in such pre-MacArthur theological contributions such as J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which was published in 1961, Charles Ryrie's Balancing the Christian Life, 1969, Walter Chantry's Gospel, uh, Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic, 1981, Mike Kokoris' Lordship Salvation, Is It Biblical, in 1983, and in his Evangelism, A Biblical Approach, as well, and uh, that Kokoris wrote, but really climaxed in uh, Zane Hodges' Grace in Eclipse in 1985. James Montgomery Boyce then wrote a booklet called Christ's Call to Discipleship in 1986, and Hodges' booklet, Dead Faith, What Is It, in 1987 began the ping-pong back and forth about what lordship salvation really was. Of course, the issue hit its apex in 1988 when a man named John MacArthur published a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. This was the book that brought everything to the forefront. This was the one that really was the watershed. It was the it was the high water markets where people said, yes, I'm there. No, I'm not there. MacArthur made the challenge in this book that many preaching the gospel were not presenting an actual saving message. That is a huge claim. That you're preaching the gospel without presenting a saving message. Now that book was followed up by two other key books. Zane Hodges then wrote in response to that the next year in 1989... Absolutely free, because he was quoted uh, quite voluminously in MacArthur's book. And Charles Ryrie wrote a response called So Great a Salvation in 1997. Those were responses to MacArthur's book. Well, it gets more complicated. Just follow along. In 1993, MacArthur published Faith Works, which was being retitled The Gospel According to the Apostles, as a second installment towards that now famous controversy. And then in 2003, MacArthur published a book called Hard to Believe, which in my opinion settled the matter. These are very important books. And you just got to understand that in 100 years and in 500 years and in 1,000 years, when the chapter of church history is written in our generation, these will be critical issues. You are living in a very interesting chapter of church history. Why? People are actually defining and redefining the gospel. People are saying, yes, I know the Bible says that, and then introducing that most threatening of all theological words, but, and then they're answering it according to experience. And this, again, comes out of, of experience. This is an ad hominem argument to the man you're looking at experience and backwatering that into the scriptures. Basically, you're saying, I know that, that my, my son walked the aisle at nine. I know he was baptized. I know he joined the church. Now he's 18 and living like a hellion, but I'm going to hold on to his little conversion experience back at nine because I want the confidence that he's going to heaven.
What I want to do, and I hope we can finish it this morning, is just answer some questions. In fact, seven of them. Seven questions that unlock the meaning of salvation. And this, this will help us navigate through this lordship debate. You say, why are you taking the time to do this, Rick? Because it is raging, not just in theological journals and books. It is still raging in the conversations that we're having with people about the nature of true faith. And if you want to get in trouble, question the salvation of someone to their face or someone that they know because they're not living like believers. And I promise you, that debate will come to the forefront. Seven questions that unlock the meaning of salvation. The first one, number one, what is the lordship of Christ? That's the central word in this debate, lordship. What is the lordship of Christ? Well, Jesus, get this, is Lord. This is, a, in the philosophical terms, an ontological reality. He is Lord. Now, here's really the rub in the whole debate. No one in the history of the world has made Jesus Lord except God the Father. You don't accept Christ as your Savior and then make him your Lord. That's the language of easy believism. He is Lord. He doesn't become Lord. If you accept him as Savior, is he just kind of sitting in the corner saying, I'd like to make some suggestions? The two clearest statements of this on the way of salvation in all of Scripture emphasize Jesus as Lord. Acts 16, 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans, 11, Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost concluded with the declaration, let all the household of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. There is no salvation that is not lordship salvation. Following Jesus is costly. Submitting to him as Lord is costly. In fact, it costs Everything. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and following, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. For what is it a man profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus asked in Luke 6.46, this is a penetrating question. Luke 6.46 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why would you call me Lord and not obey me? Again, we're going to move really fast. You can try to turn and grease up the spines of your Bible or just listen. Philippians 2, Therefore God highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Savior. No. Is a nice guy. No. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You might find it interesting, by the way, to note that Jesus is referred to as Lord 92 times, 92 times in the book of Acts. He's referred to as Savior twice. We have the equation flip-flopped. You don't accept Jesus as Savior, he becomes your Lord. You submit to him as Lord, and he becomes your Savior. That's what the Lordship of Christ is. If he is God, he is Lord. Secondly, let's ask, what is saving faith? What is a faith that saves? Let me give you a, a technical definition, then we'll unpack it. Saving faith is the soul's appropriation of and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ as the solitary hope for eternal life and deliverance from sin. This faith is a work of God in the heart of the believing sinner. Let me just say that again for you. The saving faith is the soul's appropriation of and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ as the solitary hope for eternal life and deliverance from sin. Obviously, this faith is a work of God in the heart of the believing sinner, and it's all of God and none of man. The issue of true and false faith is the issue in James chapter 2 that I referenced earlier. That will be worthy of your study and your reading later. What kind of faith truly saves? Now, the instant we say that, we have to automatically recognize that there are multiple levels of faith, multiple kinds of faith. We all have faith in a lot of things that aren't saving. I believe that George Washington crossed the Delaware. I believe that. That belief passes a history test. Faith in facts isn't necessarily saving faith. Josephus recorded facts about the life of Jesus without recording or reporting the gospel. The word faith, pistuo in the Greek, means to believe in and act upon But it's more than just understanding facts and mentally acquiescing to those facts. Saving faith is inseparable from repentance, surrender, and supernatural eagerness to obey. I had a conversation with someone who was uh, explaining to me that if you've ever believed, it doesn't matter what you do after that. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, I know for a fact that somewhere early in his life, Adolf Hitler believed in a sentence of the gospel. I wasn't anticipating what he was going to say next. I thought he was going to say, that's one exception. But he said, if Adolf Hitler ever believed, no matter what he did after that, he was saved. Is there anything in your spiritual intuition that just says... I don't think so. This is what James tells us. Faith without works is dead. doesn't live. But what are these works? Let's ask that. What are these works? Question three. What role do works play in salvation? What role do works play in salvation? Works are the fruit of obedience that God enables in us, here's the key, after salvation. They do not earn salvation. Works are the result of salvation. Now, the big argument of those who who don't believe that Jesus has to be Lord in the salvation and the gospel construct are always saying, no, that's works salvation. Let me make it as clear as I can. Works come because you're saved. Works don't come to get you saved. 
But if you're saved, works come. Obedience comes. A faith that makes no change in what you do or think or say in the way that you behave is dead faith. James teaches us that dead faith cannot and will not save. You say, well, if you've ever believed, you'll, you'll be saved. Can I tell you something? The devil believes. No one knows the gospel better. No one assents to the facts of that as more true than the devil. We love the first part of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but get to verse 10. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith... That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Then Paul says this, for we are his workmanship. The word is poem in the Greek. I love that. We're the poem God's writing. We are his workmanship. Here it is. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How clear is that? He created us to obey now, I know what you're saying. Well, I don't obey enough. Neither do I. That's why we have grace. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Perfect people don't need that prayer. Sinners saved by grace need that prayer. Paul says to the Philippians, we read it earlier, God exalted Christ, gave him the name Lord he goes on right after that in verse 12 to say, So then, my beloved brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And if the verse stopped there, I'd be really discouraged. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Okay, make, make sure this happens. Then he says, For it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me make it as clear as I can from what Paul's saying here. Work out your salvation. For salvation. God is at work in you to do the works. If there are no works, then God is what? Not within you doing those works. Bottom line is works do not save anyone. Works cannot save anyone. But they do prove that someone has been saved. What are those works? John tells us uh, very clearly all throughout the, the gospel of John. Those works are to do the will of the Father, to do what God has said. Jesus just said here in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Those works are the words of God, now canonized in Scripture, believed, applied on, apprehended, appreciated, and applied in our lives. I think there's one passage, frankly, that settles the whole lordship debate. And I, it's, it's, it's so clear. I don't even know how to interpret this any other way. First John chapter 2. This is one you can turn to. This is a highlighter, a circler, an underliner, an asterisker, whatever you do in your Bible. This is a good one. First John chapter 2. How clear is this? First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Wait, stop. If John's going to tell me a criterion by which I can measure whether I'm saved or not, whether I've come to know him, now my ears are ready to hear. By this, what I'm about to tell you, we know that we've come to know him. And then there's a conditional clause, if. How do you know you've come to know him? How do you know if you're a Christian? If we keep 
his commandments. Does that sound like what Jesus just said in John 14, 15? The one who says, hey, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments. What does it say? This man is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever, same word, keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. In fact, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Is that clear? I just want to say, let's close in prayer. If you love him, you'll obey him. You'll obey him because you belong to him. You don't obey him to get him to love you, right? Don't put the caboose in front of the engine. No one can ever get approval from God by doing good works. But because he saved us, he does good works through us and in us and with us and for us and to show the world what a saved, redeemed heart looks like. Let's ask the fourth question. What is repentance? What is repentance? Now let me give you a longer theological definition and we'll kind of unpack it. Repentance is a change of mind and heart involving turning from sin to embrace Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are distinguishable elements that blend into one composite work by God's gracious moving and genuine conversion. Now, if we wanted to, we could have a lot of fun. We could go back and and get into the theology class and talk about the ordo salutis of the divine decrees. You say, what in the world do we hire this guy to tell us this for? No, the ordo salutis of the divine decrees is the order of salvation. Are you regenerated and then you believe? Or do you believe and then you're regenerated? And my big answer to that drum roll is, I think it happens at the same time. Why do people strain at gnats and ask how many angels can dance on the head of that pen? I mean, you get into prolapsarian, infralapsarian, and there's all these things that come together. You repent and believe. And you believe and repent, but they come as a package together. Which happens the nanosecond before the other? I don't know. People spend 800-page books talking about that. Which is first? And I'm like, well, if they both just happened, isn't that just good enough? Repentance and faith in Scripture go hand in gloves, inseparably together. Repentance means turning to, from sin to Jesus Faith means turning to Jesus, from sin to Jesus, repentance and faith. The question is often asked, which comes first? first? And I don't, I'm, I don't even want to take our time to dignify that debate. I find it interesting that John the Baptist's message was repent. More importantly, so is Jesus. But notice what the apostles taught as a response to the gospel. The very first Christian sermon ever preached in Acts 2 concludes this way. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, the people were pierced to the heart and Peter uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? We've just heard the facts of the gospel. We've just heard his, his payment for our sin. We've just heard the wonderful tie-in that Jesus is the Messiah from the Old Testament. What do we do? What's Paul going to say to that? He says, Repent, repent, let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.
Another question we have to answer, and just a couple more. What is discipleship? This is at the center of the debate. What is discipleship? Because the debate goes like this. Those who are in the non-lordship camp say, well, you can be a believer, and someday when you're serious, you'll become a disciple. There's believers and there's disciples. Well, discipleship is simply becoming a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission is go, therefore, into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Now, I love the Great Commission because it's not just evangelism. It's equipping and and maturing as well. Make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. There's three participles in that that, uh, passage in the Greek. Going, baptizing, teaching. The going and baptizing and teaching have to do with evangelizing and discipling, maturing, bringing people into conformity with Christ. The non-lordship camp sees discipleship as a separate stage or a step from a conversion. But again, the Bible does not make, make such a distinction. Christ's call for discipleship is his call for salvation. They're inseparable. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. The word disciple just means a follower. I mean, what are we saying? I'm a Christian who doesn't follow Christ. That's the non-lordship's position. You can be a Christian and not be a follower of Jesus. My question is, then, who are you a follower of? Number six, what is regeneration? What is regeneration? This is really um, the theological bedrock of the whole debate. Regeneration is the spiritual new birth that occurs at the moment of conversion. You're regenerated, remade, reborn. John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is regenerated, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can I be born? How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He was thinking spatially. He was thinking in this dimension. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, born from above, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, if you're born of the Spirit of God, you're going to act like you were born of the Spirit of God. Do not marvel at what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I love that. You're regenerated. You don't even understand. Does anyone understand the regeneration? You understand the wind? Where it comes from? Where's it going? The wind comes. Where did it come from? The wind passes. Where does it go? And Jesus is wonderfully saying, you can't figure it out. God does the wind. God changes the heart. God does this regenerating work in your life. Titus chapter 3, remind them, verse 1, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves. We used to act like that. 
disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Hear how he's using past tense? That's what a believer used to be like. Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of works, of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of being born again, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You say, okay, that gets a little fuzzy. Let me let, me let Paul make it as clear as possible. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you all know it. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, behold, he is a new creature. Old things huh, passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's obedience. That's doing the works of the Father. That's loving Christ. There has to be a new birth for there to be a new life. And if there is no new life, there was no new birth. Seventh, what are justification, sanctification, and glorification? This is really important. What are justification, sanctification, and glorification? We're cramming like three years of theology and seminary into one 10-minute section. Justification is God declares us just and right as a believer because he atones for our sin in Christ. It's a moment, instantaneous declaration. God makes us just. Read Romans chapter 4 on that. He makes us just before him. What he does is the great transfer. He takes our sin and pays for it on the cross and gives us Christ's righteousness in place of our sin. You say, well, I still act like a sinner. No, this is imputed. It's in our account you need to live like your account reads. And one day, glorification, you will act like God has made you to be. Now, here's what's happened in most evangelism tracts in our generation. This is what makes me so unhappy with most tracts. They accent and put forth justification. Do you want your sins forgiven and, and to be made right with God? Yes. And do you want to go to heaven? Glorification. Well, yeah, sign me up. Who would say no to that? What kind of fool would say no to that? That is the easy believism approach to salvation. But there's three parts, right? Justification, glorification in the middle, which is your whole life is sanctification. You've got to be holy. God's made you to be holy. That's why you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. What will the profit of man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Faith without works is dead. Yes, God has made you just. Get, yes, God will bring you to heaven, but your life is now lived in submission to him as Lord. The confusion about lordship is really a confusion over justification and sanctification. Let me ask you a question. This is, this is, this is tough. I was, this was asked of me in my ordination, and we spent about 30 minutes on this. One of my, uh, um, I would say, uh, counselors, but really it was an inquisitor, uh, said to me, okay, Rick, answer this question, true or false? These series of questions. You're saved, 
by works. False. He was right. Then he asked me another question. True or false? You are sanctified by works. Ooh. Ooh. And you can, then I started just talking. And I said, well, it's all of grace. God regenerates. God is the one who, Ephesians 2.10, he does the work through us. Um, but we're to work out our salvation, and God works through us. So we, we are to be sanctified by works, but we do the work, but God does them through us. And, and that's, I don't know. <laughs> yes, all the above. And I remember uh, the, one of the theology professors who was asking me, he, said, he just smiled, and he says, that confusion is wonderful. Because it's, it's all the same. Yes, you are sanctified by your works, but only God does those works through you. How does that work out? I don't know. How are you saved? Did you make a decision or did God save you? Who wrote this book, God or man? There's a lot of things that you just kind of hold in tension in the scriptures. We are sanctified by the application of God doing works through us to become holy and conform to Christ, right? Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For God's at work within you. You must protect yourself from two parameters as you consider this debate. First, it's important to stress that true faith yields fruit. On the other hand, it's vital to stress that only the merit that saves us is the merit of Christ received by faith alone. Let me tell you the best part of the good news of Christ. You cannot save yourself. You can't work yourself to heaven. You can't do anything enough to impress God. You say, how is that good news? Because he's provided all the satisfaction and pleasure in Christ for himself. It's Christ and his good works. This is the basis, by the way, of not just the lordship salvation debate. This is the basis for Catholicism and Protestantism. You understand that? The, the whole bottom line of a, of a Catholic notion of salvation is, yes, Jesus did, but I must add works to that. And if I can't get it done in this life, hopefully someone can pray and use their works or their money after death and apply those back to me. It's the gospel and. The two most dangerous words in theology are but and and. Yes, I know the Bible says that, but. Yes, I know the Bible says that, and I'm going to. We have to be careful of those. Now, all of that was the introduction to Matthew chapter 7, which will be very short. This is where the whole debate comes to a test. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's pushing toward his conclusion. And in chapter 7, verse 21, he says to me, well, you can go back up to, um, go to verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree, good tree, bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. The good tree cannot produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What are you talking about, Jesus? Verse 20, you shall know them by their fruits. Can you explain that a little more clearly, Lord? Here it is. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he 
who works. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Remember, works follow salvation. They don't get you salvation. Many will say, this is scary. This absolutely frightens me to the core. This word many, many, a lot, most, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Didn't we do a lot of stuff and attach it to you? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, listen, you who practice lawlessness. That, friends, is the sad fate of an unsaved believer who believes that Jesus is Lord but hasn't submitted to him as Lord. So where does that all wrap up? If you believe, will you submit? Will you submit because you believe? I think we've come to a place in, in our day, in our church, maybe even at Mission Road Bible Church, where we, we have the great possibility of having unsaved believers sitting in our midst who Satan would love for you to look back and when you were four years old and walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and got a pat on the head from the pastor and banking on that as the proof of your salvation rather than looking at what Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Will you keep them perfectly? No. Will you keep them every day? No. Can I give you the best test for whether or not your soul has been converted? Do you feel and do you sense and do you grieve when you disobey? It's not obeying perfectly. Do you have a sense? I love it when someone comes into my office. Someone's done it even since I've been here. Won't say their name. Rick, I'm grieved. I just I want to be saved. I don't know that I'm saved. I feel terrible. I want to be saved, but I feel guilty and I, I sin and I don't do what I want to. I don't pray enough. I don't do this enough. I don't witness enough. I feel bad at school. I had a chance. I didn't do this. I, I just feel terrible. I don't think I can be saved. I just kind of like smile and say, really? You sound just like an unbeliever. Of course you don't sound like an unbeliever. Do unbelievers care? No, when you have that sense of I'm, I'm not measuring up, I'm not enough, then you preach the gospel to yourself. You lean on and enjoy the finished work of Christ and you go and do better tomorrow and you enjoy grace grace, not perfection. We're projects. We're moving in projection, progression, not perfection. If we confess our sins, he'll forgive them. You know what that assumes? You're going to sin as a believer. Now, I bring this up not to, not to take shots at these men that I've named, but just to tell you this, this debate, this is... This is alive in your family. This is alive in your workplace. This is alive at your schools. This is alive in the books you read. This is alive in evangelicalism. Can I encourage you to do something? Don't win the debate. Go live the debate. Submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. The Lord's slave is not quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach. Remember what Peter said, be careful, be ready 
to give an apologetic, give a hope, give, give a, a, an apologetic for what? The hope that is in you. Even Paul, when he stood before Agrippa and, and before, when he stood before um, his uh, triers, his, his uh, judges, you know what he did? Paul, the great theologian, you know what he did? He gave his testimony. Let me tell you what God did in me. And it changed my life. If Christ has changed your life, it's good to call your brother. If you believe in Christ and there's been no change, I want to invite you up at the end of our service. I would love to chat with you. Some of our elders will be up here standing on stage. And we would love to talk to you about what it means to have genuine saving faith. Not what it means to work harder and try better, but what it means to have a faith that causes you to please the Lord in your works. We'd love to chat with you about that. Let's pray together. Father, we've, uh, we've come a long journey in this sermon today. and I want to say to these people and before you, I'm grateful for their patience in giving me some extra time to work through this. This is not a debate. This is the essence of who you are. You, Lord Jesus, are Lord Jesus. You're the master, kurios, the authority. All authority was given to you and you are the authority to which we bow. The discussion of this topic brings us to the easy recognition, the ready recognition, Father, that we are so woefully inadequate in our submission, in our obedience, in our love. So teach us to love more so we obey better. And teach us to obey better, rooted in our loving of our Savior. Change our attitudes and affections. Convict us where our actions are not becoming of you. Make us live out this debate by submitting to your lordship long before we have to enter into it by dialogue. We affirm, we want to be those who confess, Jesus, you are Lord. To the glory of God and to our good we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>